Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. And before you know it, August is going to be over. And when August is over, well, our study in the book of Jeremiah is supposed to be over. So that means we are... We're basically trying to run a marathon at this point. We are just going to we we are just going to run and run and run, figuratively speaking. No actual running will occur, but we're going to be running metaphorically speaking in our study of the book of Jeremiah. We are just going to study and talk and discuss and think about Jeremiah from now to the end of August. We're going to try to finish stronger than when we ended oh, in in the United States military. We obviously had our physical training and our physical training test, right? Each year we had to do a test and one of that involved a run. And so I always, look, I never really went to the actual physical training, to the exercising. I never went to that. I found ways out of it. I always worked the system so I didn't have to go. But when it came time to my test, I always like, look, I don't care what I have to do. I'm scoring a 90 or higher because you would get a three-day pass. You didn't have to come to work for three days. I'm like, I'm going to get my three-day pa- I'm going to score over a 90. It was to motivate me. And so I would be like, I don't care. Maybe if I would have just went to ex- you know, to to the you know daily, well, not daily exercise, three times a week exercise, I would have been better prepared, but it didn't matter. But when it was time for the run, I would always start off at a pretty steady, strong pace. I would keep that pace, right? I wouldn't overdo it, but I wouldn't slow down. I, I, I was steady, slow and steady, right? Not too slow, but not too fast until, I don't know, maybe the last half mile, maybe about the last half mile. Oh, I would start, I would kick it in. I would start, I would start moving. And then probably the last maybe 200 yards, 300 yards, I would just start running. And basically that last hundred yards, I would go to a full sprint. I would, and by the time I crossed the finish line, I mean, I would almost die. You know, I'd be like, I need oxygen. I need help. I need an entire, (laughs) I need an entire medical team here because, you know, I wasn't prepared to do it, but I I would do it just because I wanted a three-day pass. And I could have made it easier on myself, but who wants to be out there at 5.30, 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning running and doing push-ups? No, 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 no. I'm finding a way out of that, but I'm going to pass the test. Well, maybe I should have done better job this month of, you know, this summer. I should have paced us a little bit better. We should have covered more. I, I, I could have prepared better, but here we are, the end of August. And ladies and gentlemen, we've got to finish the book of Jeremiah. So we've got a lot to do, and I hope you're ready to do it. I know I kind of skipped our normal intro, but good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, August the 22nd, 2023. It is 6.12 p.m. Central Time, and it is time for you to open your Bible to the book of Jeremiah chapter 21, where we're utilizing the teachings of the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee, his ministry has given us permission to use their material. I mean, I can just play it. I, I can use it any way I want, but we're using it more kind of to review it, to analyze it, and to guide discussions with it. So we haven't used a lot of it this summer, but we may be using a lot of it down the home stretch. Who knows? We will see. How we're going to get to the finish line, I don't know. I know it should just be a straight you know, course, it just, it's not a straight line. It's going to go, who knows? We're going to be twists and turns, ups and downs. But I, I promise you this, we're going to do as much as we can to get as close to that finish line, finishing the book of Jeremiah. We may cross the finish line because, well, August, the end of August is the finish line and we may not be done, but I'm going to do as much as I can to get us there. But most importantly, I'm going to make, try to make sure you understand everything I can do in my power to help you understand everything in the book of Jeremiah, but I'm also going to hope that we can make this book an end in a way that has benefited you spiritually. Look, if we get to the end of Jeremiah, you know the book more, but you didn't really benefit spiritually. There's no tangible thing that you benefited from spiritually. Then we all failed. And that will be sad, but I, you know, I'm the teacher. I take responsibility, but we're going to, we're going to try. So are you ready? Without any further delay, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, Jeremiah chapter 21, 
I hope where I pause this is the right spot or we're going to have to spend three minutes trying to find the right spot. I hope if we can't find the right spot, I'm just going to back it up and wherever and we'll just listen to a little bit of the ending of Jeremiah chapter 20. I hope that's okay, but uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to skip around. So I'll just make a, 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 ma- a major editorial decision and just back it up a few minutes and just say, let's let's review. But are you ready? Jeremiah chapter 21 is in front of us. Our goal is to finish Jeremiah 21 in this broadcast. And then maybe later tonight, we'll work on uh, Jeremiah chapter 23 And then, of course, you'll be hearing Jeremiah 23 again tomorrow evening at Victory Baptist Church. I know I know what you're saying. If you wouldn't be so repetitive on some of these things, we could be further down the road. We could be. But would you know as much as you know if you've been really paying attention and following along? The repetition, the repeating is to try to drive some principles and ideas and information deep into your brain. So hopefully... Hopefully you appreciate that. I know some of you don't. I got a I got a comment on YouTube where someone was complaining about me repeating myself and they timed it out and I don't know. I repeated myself too many times and I'm not self-aware and it was some you can go find it on YouTube it, it, it and I'm like whatever. And I all I could do was say, "You know what? Thank you. You're right. Thank you for caring enough to time it out and you know, I'll I'll do better next time." Maybe I will, maybe I don't. Uh, but you know what? I, as a teacher, I'm going to sometimes repeat things more than the student thinks I should. There you go. And <laughs> and uh, you can tell me that's a mistake and maybe you're right. But I, I have to make, sometimes as a teacher, you have to make decisions that maybe students don't necessarily approve of. That's sometimes what you have to do. You just have to. And if you're not willing to do that, then you should be the student, not the teacher. It's easy to criticize the teacher. It's another thing, being the teacher, trying to make these decisions on like, what do I do here? What should I do here? What should I do here? You know, you could argue we could be further along in our study on law and gospel. What am I doing? I'm repeating. (laughs) So I do like to do that sometimes. But here we go. This is Jeremiah 21, which is really us repeating because we've already studied Jeremiah 21. But we backed up a little bit. We backed up so we can move faster. I know it seems counterintuitive, but trust me, I think it's the right decision. So here we go. Given here in this message that takes in chapter 21 and 22. Now, will you listen? The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent unto him Pasha, the son of Melchiah, And Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, saying, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, maketh war against us. Now, it's interesting that when Zedekiah got in real trouble, who did he go to? He went to the man that he knew was giving the word of God. He passed by Pasher and his crowd. He didn't go to organize religion. Now, this is one of those things. Now, I did not bring it up in our study of Jeremiah 21 because I was so focused on one section. But, I mean, by all means, feel, feel, feel free to speculate. Why did Zedekiah, the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent unto him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, Zephaniah, and the son of Masiah, the priest, saying, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us. Why did Zedekiah send these men to Jeremiah? Was it because he's like, that man has the word of God? Well, if he believed that man has the word of God, why hadn't he not been listening to Jeremiah? Like, it's easy to say, he was like, that man has the word of God. We need to go to him. Well, if you're going to go to him, why haven't you been listening to his message? Jeremiah's been around preaching for for years at this point, right? Maybe, I don't even know how long at this point. I don't even remember. For a long time, I think we figured out the math, but he'd been ministering a long time. I think maybe close to 30 years at this point, maybe 20 years. I don't remember the exact number in front of me. Maybe he will say, but we, I think we figured it out. I don't have that notes in front of me, but for a long time, um, so if he's like, wait, that man, or or does he realize things continue to get worse? Well, it can't hurt to try Jeremiah. Is is he convinced that Jeremiah has got the word of God, or is he just looking for any solution possible? I don't know. I tend to be more jaded. 
I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I see Zedekiah as like, hey, you go uh, guys ask him. He's the man preaching the word of God. I just, I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. But hey, you, you can give me your thoughts. And if there's something in the text that proves what Dr. J. Vernon McGee just said is right, by all means, then I will, I stand corrected. I just, I just don't know what his mo- motives are. Here we go. It's interesting that I find a great many people today belong to a liberal church, but they listen to a Bible broadcast. And they, for some strange reason, feel like that they can reconcile that. My friend, when you're in trouble, nothing's going to satisfy you but the Word of God. Now he comes to Jeremiah, but he doesn't get any comfort from Jeremiah at all. He says that Nebuchadnezzar is coming down and he's going to take this city unless there's a turning to God. And he lays it on the line. Listen to him in verse 8 now of chapter 21. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And that's exactly what God says today about his salvation and his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, I gave my son to die for you, and he died to pay the penalty of your sins. He rose that you might have righteousness. And if you're saved, you must be in him, and you get in him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you trust him as your Savior. And when you do, you become a child of God. And this is my way and you can take it or leave it. God says, I set before you life and death. And that's the way God's put it. And God does it with tears in his eyes, too. But my friend, that's the way he's laid it down before us. Now, when I... Okay, we we could have a theological debate here. Does God do it with tears in his eyes? Does does God say, I've put life and death before you? Please, please choose life. Does God have tears in his eyes when he's like, please repent. Please. Now you could say, well, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So I guess maybe, but was that weeping in his divinity or weeping in his humanity? True God, yet true man. It's just, I just, we have, we got to be very careful. We don't so humanize God, right? Because we got to remember God for any destruction, for any judgment, for anything God's going to do. He knows before he does anything exactly what he knew before he created the world that Israel would go into Babylonia, Judah would go into Babylonian captivity. He knew every time judgment came upon them that they would, that, that people would die. He knows how many people are going to go to hell before he created the world. He knew it. He created the world knowing exactly what was going to happen. Sometimes it's almost like we would just like, God's like, oh, 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 what am I going to? Okay. Hey, guys, 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 here's two ways. Please choose one. Now, that, and that means God has nothing to do with the, with this, that man then is deciding on their own and God has no influence on their decision. Well, then why even pray for people then if God can't impact the decision? Or is it God the one doing the decision? If God's doing one doing the decision, if he's the one changing their hearts and giving them faith, well then why is he weeping for the others? Because he could have simply chose them. Like, I don't, I know we love to picture God in a very humanistic way. I know we do so. We like to humanize him. But there's a danger of so humanizing God that we begin to understand him and lines at like we understand him almost in human terms, in human ways. Remember, he's far above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. We cannot so humanize him. We cannot consider him like one of us. Now, Jeremiah may have tears in his eyes, and we know that to be true. Just, just got to be very careful how we describe God. Now, you may have a different a difference of opinions. Now, I know, I know sometimes God is spoken of, in human terms, right? He is described in human way because they, because that's to help us understand him or grasp him. But that's only describing him that way. You got to be very careful what we do with those things. He can be described as a bird. He can be described as bread. That doesn't make it so. Sometimes there's terms used so that we can better understand God because it's hard to understand him um, apart from some language being utilized. 
but we got to just remember this God we're talking about is all powerful and all knowing, knowing the beginning from the end, knowing everything before he created anything. And he is sovereign. All right, let's continue. And he laid it down before this king here. Now, this man Zedekiah, the last of the kings, he doesn't follow through. He's a weakling to begin with, and he's the worst one. And so there's no turning to God actually at all. And he had followed Jeconiah. You see, there had been Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and then there had been Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. My, there are a lot of them. Then Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah was on the throne, and he could look back and say, well, look, God didn't let Nebuchadnezzar destroy this city when Jehoiachin was on the throne, and he was about as bad as I was. Why should it happen now? Now, friends, the harshest message given in the Word of God he gave here in this 22nd chapter. And because Zedekiah doesn't listen, to me, means he wasn't sending the people. He's like, because that man's got the word of God. That man's preaching the word of God. I think he was just looking for solutions anywhere. Look, a lot of times people will come to you because you are a Christian. And they may say, I'm coming to you because I know you know the Bible and you read the Bible and I respect you. And then they ask you a question and then they only re- they're only looking for answers. And sometimes they're looking for justification to their action. And when as soon as you say something they don't like, then they don't care how much you know the Bible or how much you study the Bible. I mean, people, I've always said it, people don't care even as a pastor, they don't care about how much schooling you've got. They don't care about your authority. They don't care about anything. And, And you'll know they don't care because the second you say what they don't agree with, they're gone. So I think a lot of, I think it's just very common, like, oh, we're in a crisis. Well, ask them, ask them, ask them. You're just asking anyone. And and it's not because you believe one has the word of God and one doesn't. You're just asking anyone and you're looking for anyone to say something that you want to hear. And then you'll be like, that's the message I'm going to believe. I don't think it's, it's because he thought, oh, Jeremiah's got the truth. Then he would have listened, right? So I I, I, I just think he was just looking for answers, but... All right, let's see how he's going to handle this because this is my favorite section uh, maybe of the entire book of Jeremiah in many ways because I think it's this historical narrative that has to serve as a spiritual picture because the historical narrative makes no sense. I'm curious to see how, if Dr. J. Vernon McGee is going to make a big deal out of it. I made a big deal out of it. I think I spent like almost two hours on it. So I I think it's a big deal. Let's see what he does with it the judgment against the father of Jehoiachin, the judgment against Jehoiakim. He was an evil ruler also, but during his reign, there was prosperity, and men were getting rich, and the poor were being ground underfoot. That was the picture that you have. And the very interesting thing is that God has a great deal to say in his word about the poor, the very fact that the Word of God pays so much attention to that. You can't ignore it, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, will you notice verse 13? This begins God's message concerning Jehoiakim. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness. That is, getting rich. What just happened there? Did he just skip all the way from 21 to 22, 13? That was crazy. He just (laughs) absolutely... What was that? He just absolutely skipped like everything. Okay, let's go back to... I know I'm getting ready to make a a, a bad decision because, hey, the finish line, you got to get to the end of August, but we got to do... We cannot do this, all right? So we're going to go back to this, all right? We're going to go back to Jeremiah 21. I want you to see this, all right? So Jeremiah... So Zedekiah sends these messengers to... uh, 
to Jeremiah. Jeremiah sends, tells him to go back and deliver a very important message, right? And he says, look at verse 8, And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. So God, so Jeremiah is to tell the people, and this message is to be delivered to the people, Hey, there's a way of life and there's a way of death. And look what happens. He, this is verse 9, He that abides in this city shall die by the sword. All right, guys, listen, everyone. If you stay in the city, you're going to die. Now, just from a purely human historical perspective, that sounds like, so what are you telling us to do? Because in the city, you think we have some kind of protection. We have possible ways to fight back. We may have walls. We may have something. He's like, nope, if you stay here, you're going to die. Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Here we go. And you're going to die by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. But he that goeth out, okay, all right, so God's going to give us an escape plan. God's going to tell us, you're going to go out the, the back entrance, and you're going to take, you're going to go three miles, you're going to take a left, and you're going to get away. No, 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 no. Look what you're supposed to do. So if you stay here, right, you're, you're going to die. But they that go out, if you leave the city, and you fall to the Chaldeans that besiege you, you shall live and his life shall be unto him for a prey. So God tells the people, hey, here's the deal. Here's, here's the deal. Judgment is coming. You stay in the city, you die. You want to live? Leave the, the, the security of the city. Leave the works of your hands, in a sense. Leave all that you have here, all of your provision, everything that you may have. Leave it all and go directly towards the people who are coming to kill you, who are coming to take you. Literally walk right to them. And you would be like, that makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense from the historical perspective. I think it serves as a beautiful picture of how salvation works. You can stay, you can, you can stay within your own security of your own good works, your own efforts, your own morality, your own thoughts, your own way. You can stay there, but you are going to die. Judgment is coming. Or you can leave your security, leave your good works, leave your efforts, and you can run to the one who's coming to bring judgment upon you. You can throw yourself, fall at the feet of God and say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing. And because of his son, Jesus Christ, he will save you and deliver you because Jesus paid for your sins and his righteousness will is sufficient and will meet all the demands of God. To me, it's a beautiful picture. People want to hold on to their righteousness. They want to hold on to something that they can do. They want to hold on to something. Stop clinging to anything. Don't look to what you can do. Don't look to your good works to prove your salvation. Run to God and say, I have nothing. I have nothing. I've left everything. And I come to you empty-handed. I have no righteousness. I have no good works. I have no good deeds. And I fall before you. Have mercy upon me. It's a beautiful picture of salvation, an absolute beautiful picture of salvation. And I, I cannot stress it enough how important it is. I, I want you to just please, Jeremiah 21, verse 8, 9, and 10. Jeremiah 21, 8, 9, and 10. I want you to, I, I keep telling people, read it, memorize it, write it down, meditate on it. It should be sparking many conversations. It's just a, just a beautiful picture. Hey, stay in the city, you die. Leave, run directly to the people and fall into their hands. You're like, why would I go to the very one who's going, who's coming to kill me? Well, guess what? For salvation, you have to run to the very God who's bringing judgment upon you. And that's a biblical concept. Remember when the snakes came into the camp? They had to look, Moses was to take a snake and put it on the pole. They were to look to the very thing that was bringing them judgment. We are to look to the very God who will judge us. And then we're like, well, what's going to save us? Because God himself has to, well, provides someone who will meet his righteous demands and satisfy his wrath on your behalf. And if I'm in that person, then I am spared the wrath of God because Christ took care of it for me. Has nothing to do with anything I can do. Don't cling to any righteousness. Don't cling to anything. Leave the city and flee to God. Stop looking. I'm going to try harder. Do this. Don't look to your baptism. Don't look to your church attendance. Don't look to your church membership. Don't look to your Christian parents. Don't look to anything. Flee the city or you're going to die. 
because none of those things are sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. Run to God himself because the righteousness, whatever God demands, he will provide to you because of mercy and grace. And he does so in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Now, he's going to jump all the way to 22. It looks like 13. I'm going to back this up a little bit. It seems, it almost like you feel like something is missing there. I know he's in a, he, he was very worried about not having enough time. So we'll, we'll just back this up and well, we'll just see where we can end this. Here we go. They were the rich, those that give to political campaigns. That's about all they do give to. Okay, let's back that up. I don't know what that's talking about. Let's see if we can back this up far. Here we go. Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice? And then it was well with him. Now he's referring back to Josiah, the good king. Now listen to what he says about him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Okay, the audio jumped some weird. Okay, let's let's back it up here and see if we can find out where, where we need to start again. Here we go. Unless there's a turning to God and he lays it on the line. Listen to him in verse 8 now of chapter 21. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And that's exactly what God says today about his salvation and his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, I gave my son to die for you, and he died to pay the penalty of your sins. He rose that you might have righteousness, and if you're saved, you must be in him, and you get in him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you trust him as your Savior. And when you do, you become a child of God, and this is my way, and you can take it or leave it. God says, I set before you life and death. And that's the way God's put it. And God does it with tears in his eyes, too. But my friend, that's the way he's laid it down before us today, and he laid it down before this king here. Now, this man Zedekiah, the last of the kings, he doesn't follow through. He's a weakling to begin with. And he's the worst one. And so there's no turning to God actually at all. And he had followed Jeconiah. You see, there had been Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim. And then there had been Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. My, there are a lot of them. Then Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah was on the throne, and he could look back and say, well, look, God didn't let Nebuchadnezzar destroy this city when Jehoiachin was on the throne, and he was about as bad as I was. Why should it happen now? Now, friends, the harshest message given in the Word of God he gave here in this 22nd chapter, the judgment against the father of Jehoiachin, the judgment against Jehoiakim. He was an evil ruler also. But during his reign, there was prosperity, and men were getting rich, and the poor were being ground underfoot. That was the picture that you have. And the very interesting thing is that God has a great deal to say in his word about the poor. The very fact that the word of God pays so much attention to that. You can't ignore it, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, will you notice verse 13? This begins God's message concerning Jehoiakim. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness. That is, getting rich by a wrong method. And his chambers by wrong that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. You see, underpaid. And while the rich man's getting richer, the poor man is getting poorer. That saith, I will build me a wide house, and large chambers, and cutteth him out windows, and it is sealed with cedar, and painted with vermilion. 
shalt thou reign, because thou closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice? And then it was well with him. Now he's referring back to Josiah, the good king. Now listen to what he says about him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Now, that's chapter 22, and I read from verse 13 down through verse 17. And I could read on, but I'm going to break off the reading at that particular juncture because here you find God's judgment that's pronounced upon them. Two things were happening. The rich were getting rich by wrong methods, and the poor were getting poorer. And the average man actually was suffering in that day while a few were getting rich. Now, God has a great deal to say about this. This man, Jeremiah, he calls attention to it here, that rich men were heaping up wealth by others' labors, and they were treading down the poor. And in their pride and in their arrogance, they built themselves palaces and lived as though God had forgotten their iniquitous means of the acquisition of wealth. And may I say to you that the Word of God has a great deal to say about it. He said in the New Testament, "...go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you." There are two things that God condemns the rich for, the way they get money and the way that they spend money, the way they use it. And may I say this very candidly, that everything is slanted for the rich man. I find out that I'm paying more taxes than some men that are worth a million dollars. Well, you'd think I was a millionaire. And I've discovered that the tax laws are geared to protect the rich, and the politicians gear everything in favor of the rich, those that give to political campaigns. That's about all they do give to. They never give to the Lord's work. They never give anything to get the Word of God out. And God notices that. God recognizes that. The way they make it, they make it at the expense of the poor and they spend it on themselves, building palaces to live in. Now, I want to say this very candidly, and I know that I step on some toes. And somebody's going to say, well, McGee, it's quite obvious. You're sure not trying to get the support of the rich people for your program. Well, I'm giving you what Jeremiah gave. He never got the support of the rich either, and I'll have to take it on the chin. But very frankly, it's sinful for any man to live in a mansion while there's so many poor people today that are in poverty. No Christian ought to do that. Now, if you've got that kind of money, why aren't you spending it to help some of the poor? And there are a lot of poor Christians. Now, I know that they go to the ghetto or they appeal to certain races, but there are a lot of God's children today are poor folk, and they're not being helped. I know they're not being helped, and irrespective of color, there are a lot of poor people that are Christians, that God's children, and the rich Christian is passing them by while they... Now, this is interesting. Uh, now, I do believe there's a lot in the book of Jeremiah in the Bible about God's attitude towards the poor, and we could, and he, he's kind of following that. And I don't criticize it because I ran into the same kind of problem 
When I was looking at Jeremiah 22, I'm like, what do I do with this chapter? What do I do? And clearly he doesn't know what to do with it. So he's kind of going off on this whole discussion about wealth and who can, if you're wealthy, what kind of house can you live in? And when is it wrong? And everyone has their opinions and you can debate and debate and debate. And I don't want to get into a never ending discussion about that. All right. I, I, I think, you know, you, you got to be careful because you, you could, you could tell anyone, well, you shouldn't have that because there's poor people. You, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have a house that nice because there's poor people. You shouldn't have a television. There's poor people. You shouldn't be eating that good food. I mean, if, if you do have to try to find a way to balance it out. On one hand, we should be generous and careful and helpful and try to do what we can to help people. At the same time, you, you got it. You know, you could just give away all of your stuff and then you don't have anything. And the next thing you know, you're the one who needs help. So there's got to be, I, I don't know. There, I don't know. There's not a clear delineation in scripture saying what you can or can't do. All right. And, uh, and, and exactly. God searches the heart. We all, we all fail. I don't think you can determine, well, look at the house they're living in. Clearly that person is in sin. You don't know that. You don't know that. And, 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 and yeah, we can get into a whole discussion. But what I want to point out is, is he doesn't know what to do with Jeremiah chapter 22 either. He doesn't know. And what I want you to remember is in Jeremiah 22, we think that there are four kings identified here. So identify the kings and the section of Jeremiah 22 that deals with that specific king. For help, listen to my sermon that I preached on Sunday. Now, Sunday school probably was better at us breaking it down because we really just worked on trying to, it was very academic and it was not very, it wasn't very good. I probably shouldn't have deleted it, but I, I, I review that information at the beginning of my sermon on Sunday. So you can go back and listen to that and write it down and you can challenge my assessment that, oh, I think that it's this king from this verse to this verse. I think it's this king from this verse to this verse. I think it's this king. What we know is all four kings are wicked and they all commit sin. He went after about, about looking at, I guess, the one sin on how they treat the poor. And we can, we can have a long discussion about that. I went after it from a different perspective. Three of these kings are Josiah's sons. So godly parent did not produce godly children. One is his grandson. So he still did not produce uh, even a, a godly grandson. All wicked. And so I, I talked a little bit about the way many Christians think about that whole subject, about how a godly parent should always produce a godly child. And we talked a little bit about that. And then I talked about, these are four wicked kings, four wicked leaders. And no point does Jeremiah say, vote them out of office and, and rip, rip, you know, protest. And, and no, he, he didn't do any of that. So I talked about how Christians should handle and respond to an ungodly government. And you could argue, well, you didn't stay in the text because the text really is like, well, four kings are mentioned here and here's the sins that they committed. So I think we did do a little bit of that. You can go listen, but I, that's what you need to work on in Jeremiah 22 is identifying the kings, okay? And make sure then you look up in a Bible dictionary each king and just get a basic idea of what, who these kings were and what they did and when and what happened to them. And if you need some help, let me know. All right, let's see if we can finish this up building mansions to live in, houses that cost a million dollars. And I'm not sure that Christian organizations ought to have plush and luxurious accommodations. I want to be very frank today that until we deal with this, and religion caters to the rich. I meet many preachers that like to tell me, well, I have so-and-so, you know, he's a millionaire. He's a member of my church. Well, I'd like to know what he's doing to get the Word of God out. I played golf with a man they told me was worth $20 million. They wanted me to play with him. He says, you know, he's interested in your program. He listens to it, you know. And we rode along. And I must confess, I told a man all about the program, not until he asked. And when he asked, I could give him an enthusiastic sales talk about the Through the Bible program, what it's doing today. And he, oh, he was interested, said he listened to the program. You know how much he's given to the program? Not one dime. You say, well, McGee, you're crying, and you're using yourself as an illustration again. Maybe so, but I'm telling you what I know. And this is something I know today. And this is the thing that the Word of God condemns, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Read the epistle of James. He has a whole chapter devoted to the rich. 
in the way that they get their money and the way that they spend their money today. Just remember, rich is a very relative term. Very relative term, right? There, there are people who would see my house and think, I'm rich. Well, maybe compared to their financial situation, I am. However, I definitely know I'm not compared to other people. So it's very relative. One, what, 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 I, what some people can, you can look at that person and say they're rich and they would be like, no, I'm not. That person over there is rich. It's very relative. I think what, I think here's what we always have to remember because we can be very, we got to be very careful with this. It can become very legalistic in how this all works out. I do believe that yes, though all of us, for whatever we do have, we should always look to be generous when we can. And I think the church needs to be, I, I think it always works better. I think I, the way I, I tend to feel when it comes to generosity, if the church would compile everyone's resources, not to build a, a little mini kingdom of its own, but to use those resources to be willing to help people when you can in a very smart, intelligent, strategic way to bring help. I think it works better because now you're combining everyone's resources so you have more to help. So in my church, we've always tried to help wherever we can, however we can. We've always tried. I've always tried to make that a priority, right? If everyone's giving to the church, then you're like, okay, now we have combined resources. How can we help? And we've, and we've been taken advantage of, definitely. So I, I definitely understand that. So I I think that's a good thing. I do th- I understand that. Yeah, um, you have to have whether it's a radio ministry. No matter the ministry, if people don't give, the ministries don't survive. It's just I I hate that. That's one of the things I hate about ministry. Is it costs money. It costs money. It costs money. It costs money to buy a microphone. It costs money to buy a computer. It costs money to be broadcasting live. I mean, I talk about it all the time. I understand the money situation. Right, I just got the bill for for Spreaker, hundred and what forty dollars for us to be broadcasting on Spreaker. Uh, it'll be uh, in what a couple of days, maybe a week or two. I'll get the fifty dollar bill from for the Sermons two app and the Church One app, and then I'll get the what almost twenty dollar bill for our, our pod page. It's always something, and then I'll get you know it, it's always something that we, that we get charged for, and so I understand that. Uh, and I do agree that sometimes it can be frustrating in ministry and you can be very tempted in ministry then to focus on the rich, to focus on those you think can help you. And you cannot allow yourself to do that. I'm glad he's calling that out because it's easy to do that. And he's even acknowledged what he did. If you're in a car with someone worth that much money and you may not say anything, but the minute they ask you a question, you're probably going to start telling them all about your ministry, right? Because you're you're tempted to do so. Now, I don't think it's right for him to tell now, he didn't give a name, so, you know, I guess in that sense, it's okay. But if that person listens to the ministry, then they would know that they're talking about them. So, yeah, I don't think it's right. Um, yeah, that that's a good point. Being able to play golf may be seen as a rich activity. That's very true. I mean, you can go off and play golf and have golf clubs. So someone could say, well, who was paying for your golf, Dr. J. Vernon McGee? Were you paying for it? You know, how much money were you worth? I mean, you know, how much? I I don't know. It's always complicated. It's always complicated. So I try to be careful not to worry about dollar amounts that someone may possess or the house in which they may live. I just hope and pray that they will be generous and not and, and just follow the biblical concepts of generosity and helping people, loving people. Obviously, if they're Christians, supporting, you know, ministry wherever they see fit, fit, however they see fit. That's all you really can do. Because whenever you condemn other people for being rich, it comes across as jealousy. It comes across almost as covetousness. It's like you're just mad that they don't have the money. Because I guarantee if they were willing to give the money to you, you probably would take it. And you probably would then use it for yourself. Even that we always say, if I, if I got this much money, I would do this and I would help this group and I would help this group. And then you get the money and you realize a lot of that you start using for yourself because we're all human beings. So I, yeah, I don't know exactly how you work all of that, but I find it funny that he's turned Jeremiah 22 into all about this discussion. Because he doesn't know what to do with the chapter any better than I did. Okay, so I talked about the fact these are all kings; they're all wicked. Okay, 
That's something we can relate to. Now, he wants to talk about the money situation. I understand. I don't know if either is a, a good approach to the chapter. Really, the, the best approach to the chapter, you as a reader, identify the four kings, where the verses start and where they, they end, and then just know about each king, be able to identify them by name and try to know when they ruled, when they reigned, and how their reign came to an end and what happened to them. There you go. I'd hate to be a man. A Christian that leaves a million dollars when I die. I think, my friend, you're going to be in trouble when you come in the presence of the Lord. He'll want to know. And I don't think he'd object to your comforts. I think he wants you to be. I always hate when Christians say, you're a Christian man. And if you leave a million dollars by or whatever, you're a Christian man and you do this and this, you're going to be trouble and trouble when you stand before God. No, I'm not going to be in trouble when I stand before God, because God is going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, because I'm in Christ Jesus. And I stand before God, it covered in the or the imputed righteousness accredited to my account. I stand before God with the imputed righteousness. Now, I got no problem saying that my works may be judged and they may be burn up, but I'm not going to be in any trouble. I'm not going to be in any trouble because all my sins have been paid for. They've been covered in the blood of Jesus. Would preachers stop telling Christians that if you do this or do this, where, where can you say that someone's going to be in trouble before God as a Christian if they leave a million dollars behind? That is just, that is wrong to say. Maybe they're leaving a million dollars behind to their family, which then supports their family for generations to come. What if they leave that, what if they leave a million dollars behind and it comes to your ministry, Dr. J. Vernon McGee? (laughs) Would you be like, oh, well, he's going to be in trouble with God, so I cannot take this money. I mean, come on now. That that money can provide financial security for generations of family, kids, grandkids, pay for college, medical bill. Who knows how much good can be done? At least for that, you say, well, well, it shouldn't just be his family. It could be. It doesn't matter. Um, If I'm at risk of trouble as a Christian, I have a lot more to worry about than leaving a million dollars behind. (laughs) That is a good point, man. That's. That's a good point. All right. Yeah, it's true. If you're, if you can get in trouble for leaving a million by, because you die and you leave a million dollars behind, if that gets you in trouble, then I'm done. Okay. I'm just going to call it quits now and just like, Hey guys, I'm out. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Vegas or somewhere. I'm out because clearly I'm finished because I got far more problems than leaving a million dollars behind. I got enough sin. But I know this, when I stand before God, he's going to say, well done, that good and faithful servant. Not because of me, but because I'm covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been accredited to my account. And Christ is that good and faithful servant. And I'm in Christ. Therefore, I'm holy, righteous, pure. I'm not in trouble. You're not going to be in trouble when you die as a Christian. Anyone who says that, they're destroying the gospel and they're making it a law-based system. Now, you think you maybe you're going to convince people to stop doing bad things, but you're not. Hey, if you got a million dollars out there, I want you to know you better start giving it away now, because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble with God. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay, I I respect Dr. J. Vernon McGee in many ways, but I do not respect this message at all. And again, I'm laughing because I know what he's doing. He's like, what do I do with Jeremiah 22? Well, I think it says something here about the poor. Let me let me talk about that. And I was looking at Jeremiah 22 on Sunday going, what do I do? Well, I know there's four kings. At least I outlined the four kings and where I think they the, each pass, verse started and ended with that king and a little bit about the king. And then we talked about government and, and the fact that these four kings, three of them are the children of the godly king Josiah. I think I, I connected it to something textual, but, but yeah, obviously everyone struggles with this chapter. He wouldn't have given you all of that, but he also is going to hold you responsible for using it in a way for the glory of God. Now, I'm in trouble. I recognize that, but somebody needs to speak out on this because there's too much of this in the Word of God, and God makes it very clear here. In verse 16, He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well with Him. 
Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? God says, Josiah knew me, and he knew that he couldn't be my follower and not have a concern for the poor and needy, because God says, I have a concern for them. Oh, but Dr. J. Vernon McGee, you can be a follower of Christ. You can be a child of God and not do a million things you're supposed to do and do a million things wrong. So don't ever say, you can't be a child of God and do this. No, you can't. You can be a child of God and do pretty much anything because you're still a sinner and you're still going to sin. So I always love when we're like, this is the line too far. You can't be a Christian and not have concern for the poor. Then I guess you just basically have thrown a good portion of the body of Christ under the bus and saying that they're not saved. Because you've now decided that that's the sin. And someone else is going to be telling someone. And then the person sitting in the pew always gets confused. So wait a minute. I got to make sure I focus on the caring for the poor or I'm not a Christian. Wait, 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 wait. I can't do this or I'm not a Christian. Wait, wait, wait. I can't do this and I'm not a Christian. Wait, 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 wait. I can't dance. I'm a Oh, wait. I can't listen to secular music. Wait, 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 wait. I can't watch Harry Potter. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. And then finally you basically say, I can't do anything and be a Christian because there's always a preacher somewhere telling me, you can't be a child of God and do this. And it's point, you're just going to be like, well, then I guess I'm not a child of God. You're a child of God if you trust in Christ and his finished work for salvation. That's where salvation is not determined by what you do or don't do. It's determined by what Christ did. And every time preachers say this, they're throwing the gospel under the bus. The two groups of people that the hardest people to reach with the gospel, you know who they are? The filthy rich and the dirty poor, the one that are very poor and the one that are very rich. Now, God says, I'd like to equalize that because I want them to hear the gospel and be saved. I want the rich way up at the top to help those way down at the bottom. That's exactly what God is saying. And then those two groups can be reached with the word of God. So God would like it to be equalized, but God doesn't equalize it because it's up to the rich to give money to the filthy poor so that the rich won't be as rich and the poor won't be poor and everyone can be middle class. And then if everyone's middle class, then they can be reached with the word of God. So the way people are reached with the word of God is based off their economic standing, not based off the fact that God has to open the heart. So, so salvation, so people are saved. <laughs> I had, so what softens the heart is being middle class. That's what softens the heart. And God wants it to be that way. But I thought if, if you're wealthy, it's because God, didn't he just say a little while ago, it's because God gave you that wealth? Well, if God gave you that wealth, why doesn't God just give the wealth then to the filthy poor? Why did God give them too much and give them too little? If God's the one giving the wealth, just give everyone the right amount and then there'll be no uh, filthy. And if there's nobody filthy rich, society is going to have some struggles, especially in a capitalistic society, because you need the filthy rich to open businesses so that they can hire people who are poor. So just giving the money to the poor probably is not necessarily the way, but being able to create businesses so that the poor can get jobs. Yeah, I... (laughs) The whole thing is, it's, it's ridiculous. I don't, I don't even, oh, this drives me crazy. And that, may I say, I think is fundamentally the problem in America today. I do not think it's racial. I do not think it's a class struggle. I think it's a question today of rich and poor, my friend. That is the struggle that's in the world today. And communism never would have risen in the world if it had not been for the filthy rich and for the dirty poor. Those two. And it's the thing that God says he judges. My, it's difficult to let this alone. Now, here is the harshest judgment that's pronounced in the Word of God. Here in this 22nd chapter, beginning with verse 24 through 30. And Jeremiah has called upon Zedekiah to turn back to God in obedience, and he warns that failure to do so is going to bring immediate judgment. And now we come here. This is a harsher judgment 
then God pronounced upon Cain, or the Lord Jesus pronounced upon Judas. This is, I say, frightful, and it's one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Word of God. Listen to him. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, now, Kaniah is Jehoiachin, and he's called Jeconiah also. Why isn't that J-E put on here? God took his name, which would be Jehovah, away from him. God says, you don't identify me as that man. And he says here, As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet I'd pluck thee thence. Why, God says, if he was a ring on my finger, I'd throw him away, and I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And now we read verse 28. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken vessel? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? And then he cries to the earth to witness. And here's something the earth ought to hear today. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling anymore in Judah. And my friend, this is the reason that Joseph could not be the father of Jesus. One of the reasons, at least. Because he's in this line, and God says there's not going to be anyone in this line to sit on the throne at all. And he makes that, I think, very clear. Over in Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter, verse 17, he says, "...for thus saith the Lord..." David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Jacob. Well, then, Kaniah can't be in the line, you see. And yet there is going to be one in the line. And in 36.30 here of Jeremiah, God says, Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day and the heat and in the night to the frost. I tell you, God cut off that line. And the remarkable thing is, the reason we have two genealogies of Jesus, the one in Matthew leads to Joseph. Joseph gave him the legal title to the throne, but no one can come from that line. So you have Mary's genealogy in Luke, and that comes through Nathan. There's no curse on that line or judgment at all. And the Lord Jesus came through that line, and he got the blood title to the throne of David. My friend, that's one of the most remarkable things in the world, I think, today. And God calls to the earth, listen to me, he says. This is the way that I worked it out. And don't think that I can't bring judgment, even when it looks otherwise. This is remarkable, friends. Now in chapter 23... Okay, we'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. You may want to do... Now, I don't have time now, uh, but I would challenge you, look at the genealogy that goes through Joseph and see if you can see that he is connected to Kaniah um, and and how that would work. Just just look at the the, the, the the genealogy that goes through Joseph and see if you can trace it back to Kaniah. And see if like, okay, well, wait a minute. If no one is supposed to come from that, then be, because, well, G Joseph wasn't his biological father. So then does that cancel that curse out? Does that then, ca hey, hey, he, he, Joseph was not the biological father. So he doesn't have, this curse does not cancel out Jesus taking the throne. Jesus takes the throne because his ultimate father is God. And then he comes to the, uh, the line of Mary.
Right. So you can you take a look at that and see we don't have time to to pursue it now, but it is I had not even given it much thought until he just brought this up. And this is an interesting conversation. I hadn't spent a lot of time with the end of Chapter 22. I don't want to have to go back and work on it. We may have to go back and work on it to some level, but uh, definitely take a look at that and uh, see what we can uh, what we can do and what we can figure out and. And, uh, well, you can let me know. You can tell me what you discover. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And we'll try to work on chapter 23 a little bit later. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but we, 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 we spent a little bit of time. We spent another hour here, so we're doing pretty good. All right, so I'm going to write down the time. All right, I'm going to go see if my food is here. All right, everyone have a great night. Thank you for listening. And uh, hey, work on that genealogy question. And uh, and on, in chapter 22, identify all the kings. Identify the kings and which section of that chapter is about that king. All right, and then you can go listen to. Uh, he skipped, uh, yeah, he skipped a good portion of, ch- of chapter 21. He did, he did. And he, he skipped a large portion of 22 as well. And uh and then he went to 23. But that, hey, when you're going through the entire Bible in five years, you, that's what you have to do. You have to do that. So that's what I should be doing to get us to the end of Jeremiah by the end of August. Okay. I should be skipping things too, but I cannot bring myself to do so. But by listening to this, we just got confronted with this kind of a genie, a, a, a problem with the genealogy that we have to at least consider and make sure we understand it and, and, and do some more work on that. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great night. God bless.